This is iBook by Needs podcast. I'm Stepan. Uh, my co-host is uh, Pavel. Uh, and uh, today our guest is a, a hobby sprinter from uh, California, Ivan Gulkov. And uh, we, yeah, hi Ivan. Uh, nice to see you almost in real life. <laughs> At least almost. Not, not, yeah, not, not through texts and messages. And uh, we will talk about uh, hobby, hobby printing or printing as a hobby uh, because uh, I guess there may be some differences uh, if you compare to uh, printing as a business. Uh, and then Ivan will show us uh, his, uh, his workshop. Uh, and um, yeah, that should be fun. I'd love to, yeah. Tell us a bit about yourself. How, what's, what's your... Uh, education, what are you doing, and uh, how and when you decided to try printing uh, old-fashioned way? Well, basically, um, first I fell in love with computers. Computer <laughs> okay. Old computers like ZX Spectrum, basic oh, program, okay. all of that, um, which led me to fall in love with graphic design because I love drawing things on computers. Now, having gotten to that stage, having fallen in love with graphic design led me to fall in love with letterpress, which okay. is a logical continuation because all of the rules that define graphic design, basically, all of the standards, all of the aesthetics derive from letterpress. And before that, uh, illuminated manuscripts, but so I'm essentially moving backwards in time. The roots are definitely there, but uh, it feels like a huge step from you know graphic design and using digital uh, tools uh, uh, to 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 letterpress. Right, but when you when you do graphic design, you learn about traditional methods of how the design works, and when you do typography in particular, you. you when you look, say, at the program like Quark Express or InDesign um, or Publisher, basically all of the term terminology, all of the rules, all of the sets, all of the aesthetics uh, that follow are direct descendants of letterpress. But you have leading, you have kerning, you have justification. It's justified to the right, it's justified to the left. Why is it in boxes? And every single one of those things actually relates to handset typography. It's basically the same genre, and I like to pursue things to their roots. So uh, as I gotten into typesetting, as I gotten into book design, it felt like a natural progression to, but regression, I guess. Uh, it felt like a natural, re <laughs> a natural regression to go back to letterpress. Yeah. Uh, and then I visited some studios uh, way back in college when I was uh, still a student. Uh, I visited some print shops, traditional print shops, and it immediately clicked. Okay, this is where the salt belongs. This is where all the, all those. Uh, strange terms and vague rules come from. 
and I got to investigate that. But what was the next step? When we were discussing you, uh, we both commented on how strange and uh, unfamiliar term hobbyist printer sounds, because to become a hobbyist bookbinder, all you need is a piece of le uh, leather and a needle. But to become a hobbyist printer, you need quite a bit of toolkit. So... Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very heavy. <laughs> which is which is why moving moving to any place is always uh, oh my god uh, nearly impossible. There are tons of equipment and and lead type weighs a lot. And I mean not just the uh, not just the press itself. The press, my press is fairly small, but the type the actual lead type. Uh, uh, tell me about it. Um, basically, uh, the term hobby printing uh, came about around the end of 19th century uh, uh, when people like William Morris of the established his Chemscott uh, Press. Um, another route was uh, amateur journalism that emerged in America around uh, the time after the Civil War. And the two sort of combined, and it was basically a way for, for tradesmen, for printers who were actual professional printers, when they retired, they usually established their own print shops in their garages, which wouldn't hold the big presses, so they would hold, have small presses. And then, and they didn't have jobs to speak of, so they would print to their heart's delight. They would print what they always wanted to print before they retired, and that was how the tradition of hobby of hobby presses began. I don't know much about history of uh, of of these these processes of, of history of uh, uh, modern history of letter press or something, but was there any relation to I don't know. Uh, uh, printer, printers' uh, uh, presses becoming more widespread and cheaper, or how, how did it go? Basically, it was a, the uh, the major factor was the introduction of small tabletop presses, which happened around um, 1870, 1880, 1890 here in America. Um, companies like uh, Kelsey and Baltimore produced these I'll show you. it's easier <laughs> uh, produced these tiny tabletops small variants of um, what's known as a platen press so you have big presses um, known as jobbing presses yeah. with, uh, usually with a throttle that, that you pump and the wheel that spins and it goes round and round. Um, but around 1875, uh, William Kelsey came up with the idea of a small press. Um, now, his first press, of course, was, um, was a scam. And he just basically charged money for something he didn't have. Or, or was it was it a kick kickstarter kickstarter yeah. project yeah. Of, of the time? <laughs> <laughs> he basically collected money and produced nothing, 
but he was young at the time and the police came and spoke to him and told him not, not to do this again. So he did it again. But this time he actually delivered and he created the small press. Um, and then other companies followed and there was this explosion of small presses that individuals could own. And it became a hobby. It became a hobby and, and it gave, gave rise to like, say, um, apothecaries, uh, pharmacists printing their own labels and book binders printing their own little book binding cards to put inside, yeah. the, uh, inside the binding. You've probably seen a few under the empire. Yeah. I have a couple of things like this one. Oh, I think, nice. I guess, I guess this press was used for, for printing labels, like, like you told. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen yeah. anything like that. It's, it's unique. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, it, all, it also has a, has a trade for, for a type. Uh, can you set it <laughs> later on? This, yeah, sure. Sure. It's phenomenal. And, uh, I, thought, something... I thought I knew all, all of the small, uh, small forms that, uh, uh, that uh, hobby presses took shape. And then I got That's this. The one. <laughs> have you ever used either of them no uh, i i <laughs> but uh for, 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 for the last two I, I at least i've seen pictures but the first one that's unique that's yeah. um never came across anything like that judging from how you talk about it uh, hobby printing is a big thing like there are many people like you is there some kind of society of hobby printers ah uh, yes uh well it used to be it used to be much bigger of course um it the numbers dwindled from like beginning of 20th century until now uh from tens of thousands to hundreds Nowadays, uh, at least in the States, there are probably about uh, 150 hobby printers. So it's a rather small, rather small community. It's basically an offshoot of Pine Press, except we don't look to make any money of it. So we don't have to hold ourselves to such high standards or can afford to invest in um, fine materials that the, the fine press uses. Um, well, that, that, that's, that's a bit, that's a pity because uh, uh, at least my feeling is that, uh, of course, the, the, the situation is pretty similar with book binders. I mean, there are fewer and fewer book binders with every, uh, uh, with every decade, but uh, uh, I, I, I think there are more than 150 book binders. Uh, uh, I mean, hobbyist bookbinders in, in the United States. And I, I, I don't mean now, I don't talk about, uh, I don't know, scrapbooking or something like that, because uh, right. of course yeah. there are a lot of people who do scrapbooking and uh, uh, it's it's absolutely different genre. Uh, but uh, I, 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 I mean, people who uh, at least try to do fine binding or something like that or experiment with styles. And, um, but then uh, I only mentioned hobby. Um, hobby printers, but, but because there, of course, still exists uh, quite a large number of professional letterpress printers. 
Well, yeah. And the, basically, the conventions we go to are all of, them, all of the same. So you can't really tell one from the other. And usually, one doubles on the side. So most traditional letterpress printers who are in it as a trade, who are in it as a profession, uh, do hobby printing on the side. Likewise, most hobby printers take on jobs. It's okay. basically the distinction is between making your living from this and doing this um, mostly out of your own expense. Uh, say one would want to start as a hobby printer. What would a starter kit like yours uh, cost? Uh, would it be necessarily antique or other companies still producing these smaller kind of presses? Um, not as far as I know. Um, they're all pretty much antiques by now. Um, there was a company in China that did some replicas uh, like a year ago, but I'm not sure how well they're doing and their presses were way too expensive for anyone to buy because you can get the actual authentic antique one for a quarter of a price. The thing in the printing world, uh, basically, Prices are not very high. Uh, equipment, uh, at least in in the states, it's different in Europe and very different in Russia. But uh, in the states, uh, equipment is somewhat widely available. What kind of pri um, prices are we talking about? Right. Um, well, back when I started, which was about twelve or fifteen years ago. I don't remember, probably 15. Yeah, I think I was 15. Uh, back when I started, I got my printing press a few trays of type, a few cases of type, uh, some furniture, which is things you use to lock up the type, uh, the type in a chase so it doesn't fall out, and some ink, although very old ink from the 70s. Still works, still good ink. Uh, all for the price of three two hundred and fifty bucks. Two hundred and fifty. Uh, three hundred. Well, that's that's okay. very affordable. Um, but uh, but of course it was in disrepair. It was rusted. Uh, all type was basically all thrown into a bucket with mouth droppings and cockroaches and things. But still. 350. Yeah. Um, a few weekends of sorting type, cleaning, you know, cleaning the press, elbow grease, and light sanding. And the pillow face press was born. Easily. <laughs> nowadays, uh, nowadays, of course, uh, the prices will be much different. Nowadays, you, you can probably have the same setup. Um, if you search for it, and if you if you try to do it on, on the cheap, um, for about two thousand. Two thousand, okay. Because uh, because of the resurgence, because of the renaissance of letterpress that's happened uh, since the uh, early two thousands. And the bulk of it would be the price of uh, the press, or is uh, uh, the type more expensive? Surely you need lots and lots of it to. Uh, yes, uh, well, the bulk of it would be the press. I mean, I've only gotten a few fonts, small fonts, 
and then you invest in, in, in other funds. I mean, luckily for all of us, there are still functioning type foundries. Uh, and that's the, the other aspect of hobby printing is there are hobby uh, and professional type foundries still around who cast shiny new type out of the traditional type metal, lead in and antimony. That's one of the uh, areas we need to cover in one of our future podcasts and why some, somebody from, from a type, type foundry. Oh, yes. Um, you definitely got to talk to, what's his name? Uh, Sky Shipley of Skyline Type Foundry. Just yeah. loves to give uh, interviews and his uh, uh, foundry shop is the prettiest to look at because he's such a neat jerk. He, <laughs> okay. Actually, I, I have uh, my own little tiny type foundry, um, which I'm, uh, I'm basically I made uh, what's known uh, in history as a hand mold. Yeah. The thing that Gutenberg, or Gutenberg um, probably, we don't know for certain, but probably used to cast his type which was the big invention because there were printing presses before Gutenberg. He did not invent printing, but what he did invent, uh, and he didn't invent movable type because the Chinese did before them, but he did <laughs> invent type mold, probably. We don't know, most likely. Uh, a, a little handheld device that allows you to cast new type at infinitum. And uh, because I wanted to print something in Church Slavonic, in Russian, in Vyaz like, uh, and Ustav and Polo stuff, um, and couldn't find any of those fonts, they just don't exist nowadays. Um, I basically made my own. I made my own hand mold. Um, somewhat in the image of the one Gutenberg used. I've uh, built a CNC machine, a CNC mill, to um, make the punches, uh, the, to make the matrices. Because traditionally, you would have to carve a punch. And so there's a special profession called a punch cutter who cuts the punch in steel, tempers it, then um, strikes it against a little piece of brass that's called striking a matrix. And thus you get the matrix with the outline of the type and then you put it in a hand mold. But I couldn't do any of that because I'm lazy and uh, shoot the fingers. And also it takes forever. Didn't it take like four years Gutenberg to make his, uh, his first font just enough to, uh, to print his first Bible? It wasn't just making a font. Well, the making a font shouldn't take four years. I mean, you, you can make a font probably half a year. Uh, but he had to create the whole process. He had to create the line of work. So he had to create the, the uh, perfect um, ink solution first. The ink that would spread evenly with those uh, ink balls. Uh, the press that would be able to take the pressure, um, the type 
first to draw the type and to create all of the letter shapes because Gutenberg's type, there were, if I recall, there were about a hundred ligatures in it because he wanted to approximate uh, handwritten manuscripts as much as possible, which called for a lot of scribal abbreviations, a lot of um, ligatures of letters sticking together. Um, a lot of alternative letters because he wanted his lines in the Bible to be perfect without any gaps, without any of the crap we see in later Bibles uh, or in later publications and even now. You know, you have big gaps between letters, uh, uh, letter spacing, kerning problems. Um, he avoided all of that by creating a shitload of matrices. Supposedly, because we don't know. Actually, no. when everyone talks about how Gutenberg did it, we all assume, because no documents actually survive. Uh, the first printing press we have records of, um, at least pictures of, is 15, 50 years after Gutenberg. Um, but we assume uh, we assume because uh, the the technology has not changed from Gutenberg all the way to like mid nineteenth century. It was more or less the same for five hundred years. We assume that that was the process that Gutenberg used, and that was the process he envisioned. But I think most of that time spent, most of those uh, years, was experimentation getting things to align with things and creating the workflow, which of also, course was the thing that got him um, bankrupt. <laughs> I also know that uh, uh, Dutch uh, contest uh, uh, the, the invention and they think that uh, there was a oh, yes. uh, there was a press before Gutenberg in the, in the, in the Netherlands. <laughs> well, they contest. <laughs> But the lady doth protest somewhat too much. <laughs> now, I, I know that uh, contemporaries or near contemporaries of Gutenberg wrote about him as the founding figure of their business. So most of what we know about him is either from the court documents when he went bankrupt or from uh, colleagues from other German towns that wrote about him as, as, uh, about, as the man who originated the whole process. And also speaking of uh, how he uh, managed to be so close to, um, to the look of uh, uh, um, uh, handwritten manuscripts, uh, there is a famous copy of Gutenberg's Bible printed on vellum, uh, uh, still in Oxford, that was catalogued as a manuscript until 1890s. <laughs> It was so close because it was nice. on vellum, because it was hand colored, but mostly because uh -huh. the letters were so buried and everything was exactly as it should. Uh -huh. He even uh, drew the lines, uh, the red lines uh, that scribes uh, uh, used. Uh, so he, that did the trick. Shame, shame he went bankrupt. He should have he, he been famous and uh, wealthy didn't happen. <laughs> well, so few printers are. Uh, there's an old joke that um, the best way to make a small fortune in printing is to start with a big one. 
So you are not, uh, which I think is true for most of the. So you are not planning going professional anytime soon. Um, I don't think it pays enough to be honest. Um, and I I like the idea of hobby printing. Um, in the sense that it does not restrict you to uh, the customer's demands. So you can print on your own, at your own time, at your own leisure, and uh, at the quality and at the quantity that you desire yourself, which is, which is basically the whole idea of hobby press. Well, who, who is your audience then? Who do you uh, aim it at? Um, mostly other printers, uh, fellow, fellow printers, because there are mailing lists and um, forums and exchange groups who collect other printers' stuff and the general population, whoever damn pleases to look at myself. I'm always open. Um, I mean, I do, I do occasional, uh, an occasional commercial job as well. I mean, um, sometimes people want custom printed book plates or um, little uh, certificates and things or business cards with the Darkos effect. On I once received a wedding invitation that was printed. I've, I've printed a wedding invitation, uh, although never again. I'm, I'm, I'm done talking to brides. <laughs> it's ne it's, uh, it's never good enough. <laughs> it's a path to insanity. Working with Bryce is never, never again. <laughs> Although we did pay well. In the end. <laughs> okay. But I think I, I, I lost more on, on uh, hospital bills. But I assume nowadays you can order any kind of uh, font and they'll make you make it for you. No. Uh, sadly, no. Yeah, uh, the, the process of creating new fonts. So no one basically uh, nowadays, no one casts new fonts because uh, it's too involved of a process, and um, the know-how is basically lost. Uh, there are still a few, one or two people in the world who know how to do this, how to cast new fonts from new designs. Uh, but they are without means and uh, couldn't be bothered in their 90s. Uh, you can cast fonts from old matrices, from matrices that were um, milled, um, a century before but uh, i think with the with the modern fonts uh, there is another problem because they are all copyrighted uh century old fonts are, are not copyrighted because uh, their creators are long dead uh, uh but but all new not all there are free fonts uh, or uh fonts uh, uh that are uh 
distributed uh, uh, on different based on different licenses that allow copying and, and stuff. Uh, but uh, many of the modern fonts are copyrighted. But, but, but well, to be honest, most of the fonts were copyrighted even back in the day. It's just people didn't care. So there were always lawsuits between type foundries. Everyone stole from everyone. It's the same with uh, old uh, little printing presses. There are a dozen of printing presses that look exactly the same uh, from different companies and everyone is was always suing everyone else. And they were always tangled in uh, lawsuits, lawsuit okay. disputes all the time. And same with the fonts, they would just recast it, make it a little bolder and change the, change the name or change the name entirely without <laughs> doing anything else. Uh, so I think that uh, the, that in that regard, the situation hasn't changed much. I mean, there's still font piracy today, right? It's major. If I get you right, you can't even print in uh, such design classics like Aaron Gill's fonts because they were invented in the 20th century. So 20th century fonts are out of question for you. What? No, no. Uh, 21st fonts are not out of question for me. I mean, I love, I love new fonts. I, I'm not a retrograde. But how do, uh, uh, sorry, uh, I don't get it, but you just said that you can't make uh, a new, a new, can. new, new fonts. No, I said, I said the tight foundries. The, the people who cast new fonts, um, yes, they don't have the know-how nowadays or the time or the money to uh, cast new designs because of the uh, time and effort involved in creating new matrices in general. I mean, there are still people making new fonts from their original designs. And that's something I'm aspiring to do. I'm, I'm trying to create uh, something resembling uh, uh, Francisco Scarina's uh, typeface from Scarina's Bible. So far, I've only gotten just a single letter B. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as far as being commercially, uh, commercially viable, there's just too much of an investment and not enough of a return because um, metal type costs about as much as digital type nowadays. That's the thing that blows my mind. But to buy a piece of metal type, like I showed you, would cost you about the same as to buy a digital font. About yeah. $35. Uh, could you talk a bit more about this Scarina project of yours? You should probably tell to our listeners uh, who Frank Scarina was, because not many know. Right, uh, so the Francisco Scarina was uh, a scholar and a printer from what is now Belarus at the time, uh, the great duchy of Lithuania. I guess, uh, Commonwealth of Polish Lithuania, um, who basically was the first uh, uh, Slavic printer, uh, the first pr pr printer who happened to be a Slav who printed in Cyrillics. But he didn't do it in Slavic lands, right? Wasn't it in Venice? Yes, yes. No? He, he designed, 
um, the most beautiful Slavic alphabet, uh, which he printed all of his Bibles in. But where did he print him? Print them? I thought he did it in Italy, or at least he. Venice. I think it was in I'm Venice. Sure. Yeah. Mm, are you sure? Because I I thought he he came back. He after studying at the um, university. Uh, I thought he came back to what's now Belarus and established his friendship. But I um. I'm not quite sure. So maybe we'll fact, we'll right. fact check it. <laughs> um, I, only, I only know he, he was a Slav and he printed in Cyrillic. And uh, I've seen his books and the thing about them, uh, in design terms, they are so much better than first Russian books that were printed much later. They, uh, his font, well, his, font, his fonts are better, his overall his design uh, is much better. Yeah. Fonts are better, his overall designs are better. Much later, I wouldn't say, I mean, 50 years difference. So, you are inspired by uh, Skarina's Bible to do what exactly? What are your aspirations? Uh, to, produce font type. Uh, to produce a font type that I can use to set few pages of uh, Bible with, maybe, or like the wedding invitations, <laughs> if such a bride ever emerges, who <laughs> would happen to appreciate um, something, something as crazy as that. Yeah, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess this gives a scope and a scale for the projects because you spend the half a year or a year to, to create a font to cast it and then you print several pages and well. Yes, yes. Well, well, that's the essence of Hobby Press. You ask me what Hobby Press is, this is Hobby <laughs> Press. This, uh, you spend time and money to produce something of little to no um, monetary value. It's the, uh, and it's the, that's the difference between a Hobby Press and a Fine Press, because a, a Fine Press, while doing the same, at least uh, expects to get the money back eventually. Uh, I guess I guess we have to hope that our civilization will will get uh, richer and wealthier with uh, every uh, year or century or something, and uh, there will be just enough wealth accumulated so that people will be able to have printing at their hobbies <laughs> to continue this process. <laughs> well, it doesn't cost a lot. I mean, it's mostly time. It's mo uh, most the thing with printing. It doesn't actually once. Uh, it's not a very expensive hobby. It's a time-consuming hobby. I mean, and for, frankly, printing takes about like 10% of it. 50% um, is taken by uh, registration and make ready and typesetting. Another 20% is taken by disassembly and putting things back, back into the boxes. The rest is clean up. Uh, the rest is clean up. Because when you print, it's a messy business. It's no no wonder why printing was called the black art. Because everything is covered in ink at the end of the day. It's everywhere and it's nearly impossible to wash to wash off. I mean, you get it on your skin, it stays on your skin for like a month. 
Oh, uh, I, I, re I really like those old books that were proof copies, the copies of the books sent to the printers. You can always find uh, finger uh, fingerprints on them, and they are not fingerprints of the author, as it's often said. Yes. They are always fingerprints of the printers, because the, the stuff gets everywhere. Well, there's a reason why a printer's apprentice was known as a printer's devil, because he was covered in uh, ink uh, from top to bottom, because he, he was the one doing all of the cleanup. So they look like little devils. They look like Mike Ichertia, all covered in suit. <laughs> it's messy business. Yeah. And what what kind of people are drawn toward uh, uh, towards this hobby? How would you uh, d uh, describe the community? Who are they mostly men, uh, for well, example? It's basically two sides. Um, there's uh, the old tradesmen, the old people who studied to be pressmen, typesetters, correctors, publishers, who retire and get a little press into their basement and just continue on printing on one side. On the other side, it's um, young whippersnapper uh, graphic designers who basically fall in love with the process and try to follow suit and uh, well, also some printmakers, uh, craftspeople, but mostly, mostly it's those two. So old tradesmen and uh, on one side and, and, and um, nerds on the other. Uh, it sounds like a very nerdy business. I like it a lot. It's fun. Also, the, the drinking parties are amazing. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's a tradition among printers um, stemming from around like 17th century uh, called the waste goods. No, quite, quite no, no one quite knows what the etymology of the word is. Probably something to do with geese, but no one knows. Uh, traditionally, it was held on St. Bartholomew's um, day. And it was basically a way for the owners of um, print shops, for master printers, uh, to throw a party to their fellow congregation, to their fellow men. At which point, they would all get, get ridiculously drunk fall off the chairs and start bellowing out stupid songs about printing. Now the tradition kept on and still lives on and there are whiskeys happening um, in United States, England, uh, I think the Netherlands, although I'm not sure, um, Germany I think as well. Um, there are amazing the parties are amazing, basically. I'm I'm in there for for the parties. Forget <laughs> the forget the printing. Just, you walk around, you look at old presses, you look at each other's type collections, you trade things and sell things and buy things, and then get ridiculously drunk and into deep and meaningful conversations that only two drunk printers can. 
Yes, that's another thing. Uh, traditionally, printing and drinking always went hand in hand. Printers always had the reputation of being horrible drunkards. Um, even from the time of Gutenberg, uh, basically, when you read some something like Moxon's mechanical exercises, um, all people are concerned with is uh, gathering money to to buy beer. Um, from uh, Benjamin Franklin's another printer uh, description of in his autobiography when he went to London to a print shop. No, he didn't drink himself. He was a diesel toddler at the time. Uh, but everyone basically they drank um, in the morning for, instead of for breakfast. They would drink two times in the afternoon for lunch and Right. Before lunch, I, I forgot the name. Uh, they would drink in the evening, and then the master printers knew a trick because they would save the very little last bit of that drink before going off uh, home. Um, it was known as a th uh, thimbleful for the comp. A rookie printer would just drink his fill and would be struggling to finish his job. So he would stay late. Now the master printer knew he had to save just a tiny bit at the end of, uh, at the bottom of his tankard. Because when it was time to go, to go home, he would pour that beer onto the form, onto the, onto the letterpress form with all of the letters, making him stick. So he wouldn't have to do such a good job in uh, locking it down so he can go home earlier. How does one start apart from being uh, from buying the, uh, uh, the, an antique press and fonts? Uh, do, you, uh, do, you need, uh, do you have to learn uh, those skills? Uh, did, how did you start? Did you learn from somebody? Do you yourself teach? Uh, or is it entirely self-taught, the whole process? Uh, well, you, uh, well, there's a traditional way and my way. Uh, my way, I basically learned learn from books, essentially. Uh, so I did not have a master. I, I, I didn't study under anyone. I basically just read everything I could, uh, all of the books, all of the forum posts, and visited some type, uh, some uh, print shops, but indiscriminately. Uh, traditionally, the trade um, it was one of those old medieval trades that were taught from master to apprentice, uh, and it was supposed to take about seven years. So you become first a student, uh, which means sleeping under the under the table and basically uh, washing the floor for the first three years, probably. Um, then, you, then you become an apprentice, at which point you're actually taught some valuable skills. Uh, um, after that, you progress to journeyman, which means basically taking up your shit and going places uh, and traveling from town to town, from place to place, learning the trade. Um, 
eventually settling down and starting your own print shop, at which point you can be considered a master printer and you can take on uh, an apprentice or a student of your own. Now, that, surprisingly, that system uh, in the States continue, uh, has survived until um, like 1960s. There was still traveling pressmen, there was still traveling printers, known as tramp printers, uh, all the way to 1970s, um, which gave a whole genre of literature uh, and uh, folklore because they would sing songs about tramp, tramping printers and stuff, tell stories. Because they were considered the finest. The best printer you can have is a tramp printer. Now he smells bad, because he's basically a bum. Um, he walks and talks funny because he's always drunk. Because that, was, that sort of went with the trade. But he was the finest uh, in terms of skill because he could work on any equipment anywhere and could do any job. He could compose, he could compose pages, he could typeset, he could lock it up, he could print, he could sweep the floor afterwards, he could correct, he could work as an editor, he could do anything. Uh, all you need to do is give him a little shot, uh, a few shots <laughs> and a place to stay. And they, and they told the most amazing stories, which is why all, all of the other pressmen who was staying locally, would always fight for the chance to get that stinky person to stay with them for the night. Um, it was an interesting trade. I understand that uh, the system of uh, journeymen, uh, craftsmen and artisans uh, is still existed in, in modern Germany as well. Uh, well, I think it does for carpenters. Well, it, 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 it still uh, survived for bookbinders as well. Oh, interesting. Uh, as far as I know. And I'm not sure about printers uh, because uh, it's, it's a bit uh, further away from me. But, but still, I, I know that uh, it still exists for bookbinders in some form. I know that German uh, carpenters still have to wander the, wander the earth for a, uh, like a year and a half, a year and a day. Yeah. They have special clothing, special hats, a little yeah. staff, wood yeah. that they walk through. I actually met one of those guys traveling from Germany in, in that garb. <laughs> I know they're still making what's called uh, masterwork, like masterpiece. Uh, the, to become a master, you still need to uh, to, to complete that one spe one special piece. The same about uh, people who make furniture; uh, they usually make uh, miniature pieces uh, of furniture, and, and only if you can make an idea, an ideal, a perfect miniature, I don't know, a table or a wardrobe, only then you become a master. Yeah, I don't think it was the same way with printers. At least uh, it was the same way with, with printers in Germany, but not in England or United States. And basically, there's nothing like uh, there aren't any ma master printers. Um, you can call yourself one if you have a print shop, but no one actually in their right mind would. No one actually calls themselves master printer because uh, there's no process of getting to master them. 
it's something that other people can call you, but you cannot call, call yourself. And by, by this time nowadays, there are no masters left. I think someone like Eric Gill was probably one of the last ones. <laughs> So it's it's November now uh, when we're recording this uh, video, and I guess it will be uh, posted uh, uh, still in November. And uh, this is the month when uh, uh, we have uh, we we usually have this uh, book Kunstbörse uh, uh, book cards fair here in Leiden in the Netherlands. And uh, this year, uh, due to uh, coronavirus lockdown, it, it was cancelled, uh, obviously. Uh, but that's an event that uh, that is created uh, jointly by by the Dutch uh, Guild of Printers and Dutch Guild of uh, Bookbinders. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever been here in Leiden or maybe uh, to other uh, European uh, printing fairs or something? Uh, what's your experience of, of that? Maybe not not only European, maybe in some other uh, regions as well. Uh, well, I've only been to um, St. Bride's in London. Uh, it's, it used to be an old trade school for printers that now became a library and a museum that's basically closed off to the public that you have to ask permission to, to enter. And um, it, it was quite fascinating. Um, the, trying to remember um the, the quite quite an amazing selection of old books and old um prints some original designs uh from eric gill for oh. example for his letter form how he actually constructed them um other than that no 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 i haven't had the pleasure I've I've visited a lot of print, um, of printing festivals uh, here in the United States, the Whiskies, mm -hmm. which I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of printing museums here. But um, I visited one printing museum in uh, Saint Petersburg. Um, in in Florida or in in, in Russia? <laughs> in Russia, in Saint, in in the proper Saint Petersburg. In a real <laughs> yeah, I understand that uh, St. Bride's uh, have a special place for bookbinders as well because uh, at least uh, designer bookbinders competi uh, a competition uh, uh, shows their uh, the the bindings uh, uh, selected for the competition at St. Bride's uh, for some time every every time there is a competition and uh, probably some other I'm not sure about uh, I I don't remember about uh, uh, the uh, Society of Bookbinders competition, uh, which is also held in, in the United Kingdom, but um, I need to check. But so, yeah, that's 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 a familiar name, a familiar place. <laughs> uh, what about what about uh, printers in Russia? I know there has been a certain resurgence of interest. There, uh, I know uh, a, a, a couple of guys who started on uh, started their own print shop here. You could. Uh, call them professionals because they make their money from it, but um, they're, they're basically amateurs. And I know of a few more shops, both in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, have, uh, have you had any contact with them? What's, what's your knowledge of it? Um, 
I think I know most of them. And um, good friends, uh, like the Demon Press, with Evgeny Perfiliev and the Sergei Besov and uh, the Suvorov, another one. Um, they're, they're amazing and wonderful. And we basically corresponded back when they didn't have print shops. Um, in some small ways, I inspired them <laughs> to start the, uh, start on this path, but then they sort of outgrew me a lot by actually establishing very successful businesses and um, uh, producing amazing work. Um, I'll probably also mention Fyodor Shurga from uh, Kiev. Um, What's, his, what's the name of his press? Uh, it's, uh, it escapes me from, uh, right now. Um, Aficina del Mani, I think. But it is still a, a small community, not like a hundred people in years. Well, it's, but... it's a small community. I mean, where is it a big community? <laughs> it's, uh, there, there are few printers in the world left. Um, because it, it's not, like I said, it's not a very profitable business. If you want to make millions, it's not the way to go. I mean, printing in general is dwindling down, not just letterpress printing. Um, and letterpress printing takes, um, you have to have a lot of equipment, you have to spend a lot of time, it's slow print. One of the old time printers called it slow print. Um, it's expensive, it's time consuming, and most of the population would not be able to appreciate the effort. No. So, it, so you, you're basically left, to, as far as customers, you're left with people who value this sort of thing and understand its value which is basically other fellow designers. That's, that's what I wanted to say, but that's not that small a market, at least in Moscow. Uh, there's a, a great appreci appreciation among designers for handmade prints. There is, uh, uh, there is a series of markets where you can buy handmade prints from young, uh, young designers in very different uh, techniques. So, so the, uh, you can you can even make your living off it. I know a, a couple of designers who make a considerable part of their income from from their prints. So the, there is great interest for it in Moscow. I guess I guess it helps that uh, uh, the market in in Moscow and in Russia in general is underdeveloped. So there is uh, there is fewer people to compete for for the you know for the buyers. Uh, in, in the United States, I guess uh, the market is absolutely different because uh, there are more printers and uh, uh, it's sort of uh, split between them and it's, it's much it's, harder to... It's still fairly small. It, it, yeah. It's still mostly just people who are in the book arts or, or at least know someone in the book arts who could appreciate this thing. I used to do uh, printmaking like Intaglio and uh, things. And one of my instructors, uh, he always said that the only people who understand and appreciate and buy um, prints from printmakers is our fellow printmakers. 
<laughs> no one, no, no one else understands what it takes to do dry point or mesotent or uh, or an aquatent uh, in Talia. Uh, they just look at it. Oh, is that pencil or? But, but don't you feel like there is a, an ever-growing interest, uh, perhaps as a protest to the uh, modern world? Uh, to have something made by hand and to know how it's made. Speaking of uh, uh, William Morris, I mean, that's how it started. It started as a, pro as a protest to depersonalized uh, industrial uh, process. And uh, e even more so now when uh, most people don't ever hold in their hand anything made by, uh, uh, not by a faceless machine or uh, by, what amounts to a slave somewhere in southeastern China. So it is much, much nicer, if you can afford it, of course, to have something made by an artist, a craftsman, a master. And I, I think there is a great future in, uh, in all these crafts. Well, there was essentially, uh, certainly a very big resurgence, also, basically starting with the internet. Um, in like late 90s because be before then basically the entire trade was died the entire trade uh, at the end uh, at, like in like 97 consisted of very old people in their garages who were still uh, working for you know, to please other very old people in their garages who still remembered the old days and resented uh, photocomp, photocomposition machines and even linotypes to some extent. But then it bloomed uh, with the introduction of the internet and news groups and uh, forums and things. And as we march on into more and more uh, automated uh, industrialized world, uh, there is, yes, a big resurgence of traditional crafts. Um, is it enough? To, uh, is it enough to build a <laughs> business on? Uh, probably. I mean, some people like again the Demon Press managed to. Um, although, probably uh, the only uh, the only group the, the only print shop that I know of that manages to work commercially but do so in handset type um, that is not actually a fine press at the, at the same time is uh, the amazing girls um, from the Starship press. Now, if you want to find someone to call a master printer, it's those girls. And they're amazing. Uh, they basically they, uh, resurrected the idea of, that was known at the beginning of 20th century as artistic printing, which kind of stands from William Morris again, but it was a way um, for printers to establish themselves against uh, traditional letterpress printers, uh, to establish themselves against uh, the people who did lithography. So they were looking at all of those beautiful swirls and all of those beautiful designs, like 
gaslight photo, uh, gaslight um, designs and said, well, we can do this all in type metal. We can just bend the rules. We can assemble type in very creative ways. We can combine things, combination of borders and things and ornaments that would be just as good, if not better. <laughs> it is better to me, but uh, them it was, um, so, uh, but most commercial, successful commercial print shops today uh, who do letterpress do it with photopolymer. Because that, uh, I mean, if I take a, if, whenever I take a an, an actual commercial job, I do it in photopolymer because it just makes more sense. Because you can, you have hundreds of fonts and you can design anything and it doesn't cost a whole lot of time, effort, or money, to be honest. Um, as far as handset typography, as, as far as traditional typography, um, I don't think there's much of a market for that. Except for those girls. No, they manage it beautifully. Arian Press is another example here in San Francisco. But they're a fine press. They do very super expensive, very uh, luxurious editions of classical books, like Moby Dick, uh, Bible. Um, it's, all, it's all done on a um, mo monocaster. So it's, it's typography. It's not handset, it's machine set, but it, it is letterpress. Um, and they employ very famous artists who design them. Um, illustrations and things, and they sell a few copies to very wealthy collectors, but that's, that's, and they bind them beautifully in leather and things, but that's a slightly different story. As far I guess we'll have to... As far as small scale trade printing, if you want to make money, you have to do it with the power. Yeah. You need to work with with collectors and uh, uh, make uh, really expensive bindings out of your printed pages. <laughs> uh, I guess we will have to ask you to give give us some links uh, so that we will be able to post them uh, below the video. Uh, links I'll, I'll to uh, some works. I'll send you some links, uh, some videos. Yeah, yeah. quite a few. You met. You mentioned that. Uh, uh, most of the customers of printers are uh, other printers. And I, I remember that the only full-size prints I have uh, uh, is, it's, 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 by the way, it's a good way to introduce our uh, next week's guest, uh, uh, Louisa Blackbird. Uh, uh, she's a Scottish, Danish Scottish uh, printer, uh, designer and printer. And the only print I have uh, uh, is a print uh, uh, she made, and I saw it last year during this uh, uh, book arts fair in Leiden when I was uh, taking part, in, uh, and then she was as well. And we stood like in uh, ne not next to each other, but in, in, in neighboring row rows of the <laughs> fair. And uh, here is this print. <laughs> in God we trust. And, and I just uh, like the humor and satire of of uh, this print and some of other her prints. But then the prices are not not low. I I understand why the prices are not low because it's a lot of work and effort and time and investment. 
but then for many people uh, paying uh, uh, at least dozens or maybe hundreds of uh, euros or do dollars for, for a single print uh, uh, may be uh, too extravagant, I guess. So um, I, I've never actually seen uh, uh, actual LARPAS printers selling anything for, for that amount. Unless you mean uh, complete books. But as far as individual prints, they, they're usually pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, you can you can get a print for like ten bucks, no problem. Okay. So it's uh, um, I mean it depends on how many colors are used because each additional color means the whole process of setting new type, printing, print, yeah. registering, printing, then washing up. Yeah, which sort of complicates things. Um, and the more colors you have, the more misregister you get between them, and the, the more effort you have to take yeah. into your make ready and into your um, preparation. Uh, but I've never actually seen, I mean, I've seen fine prints like uh, from printmakers who do Intaglio yeah. uh, like and things, they can cost a lot. but Prints from actual traditional printers, I've never seen them being expensive, to be honest. Sadly, I wish they were. <laughs> I could sell them for, for a lot. Okay. Like, for example, let me show you. That's it for today. Thanks a lot, uh, Ivan, for uh, uh, speaking and talking to us and for showing uh, your your craft. Wish you a lot of luck with uh, your future projects and uh, with this idea of uh, uh, creating Skarina's uh, uh, font. I think it's an amazing idea. And uh, many thanks to all of our viewers and to our supporters on uh, Patreon. Uh, it's uh, because of uh, the pledges of uh, the supporters uh, we uh, have money to pay for editing of these uh, podcast videos and that means a lot to us thanks a lot and uh, subscribe to our channel and uh, see you next time bye see you guys